0: Hello everyone. Simon Jacobson here. I'll be speaking about a topic that unfortunately um, and tragically is lately in the news with these high-profile suicides. So the issue has come to the fore, unfortunately, and um, by request of many, as well as my own sense that it's important to speak about, even though it's so painful, that's exactly what we' will do discussing this topic. Is Suicide a Solution? A Kabbalistic Perspective. I'd like to dedicate the class in honor of Emanuel Klempner upon the happy occasion of his Bar Mitzvah. May he receive merit from the teachings of this discussion. May it serve him well, his family well, for many years, for many healthy and long years, and bringing his unique light to this world. So this topic called suicide is, uh, even though it's callous and insensitive to talk about statistics, but yet perhaps I will mention a few simply because it can propel us into a state of um, action and realizing the vigilance necessary to address this plague, both for people who may be either contemplating or thinking or speaking about suicide, or family and friends who care about our loved ones and want to know what we can do. So statistics. In the United States alone, 45,000 people approximately kill themselves a year. That's the United States alone. That's not even counting attempted suicides. That's a very significant number. And... Obviously, there are probably even unreported suicides. And many times people, because of the shame, there's probably no deeper, darker secret for a family's life is the shame and the, the, the sheer tragedy of suicide. So many people do not acknowledge it or give other causes for death and so on. I'm not judging anyone. I'm just stating that as a fact. So we're dealing with something that is beyond the pale of most of us to even comprehend. Some people can't even understand how can someone take their own life. Isn't life the most precious thing? Don't we all fight for our lives? Isn't that a natural instinct? So you could just imagine the despair that somebody reaches when they come to that abyss and they feel that they're the only option left. Again, I really loathe talking about such negative things, but I believe we can talk about it in a way that actually come away with a positive message that can help preempt and um, prevent, obviously there's no magic tricks, but nevertheless an, a mindset and an attitude to what life is about, appreciation of life, in perhaps new ways. And I will take a practical and a mystical and spiritual perspective on the topic because it's so much connected to why we're here in the first place. What is life? and? If life is negligible, obviously it's much easier to take a life, both your own or another, God forbid. That's what we're going to be addressing here, both for anyone listening to this who may be in a place of such despair or people, as I said, family, friends, uh, students, anyone that we come in contact with. It's also fascinating. I don't know if the word fascinating is the right word. Maybe I should correct the word. It's also interesting or ironic, I should say. It's ironic that in a society in which we live, with so much comfort, with so much luxury, with so much, such ease, you would think there'd be less reason for people to be upset about their own lives. You know, it's one thing when you're living under oppression, you're living in deep pain, you're leaving, living um, not free, and all your options are cut off. That's one thing, so you're desperate and perhaps... I'm not justifying, but I could see somebody feeling that type of feeling of better not to be here under such torture. Someone living during the Holocaust. Where they saw life was much more difficult than death, frankly. The inhumanity that people were subject to and so on. But if you're living in a world, in a life, where there's so many options. Because remember, we're talking about the American, the statistics I said before. In the United States, you have all the options. Why would you choose such an option, which is a finality a, 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 of, of the worst order. There's so many options we have. You, know, you just open up the internet, you have literally options for everything today. Is it perhaps connected to the fact that we have so many options? What does comfort do to us? And that's, of course, a key element. I was studying some of the statistics just to see patterns or uh, different uh, thoughts that maybe you can connect the dots. And I noticed something interesting, that in the numbers three or four times as many women, as many men, I should say, take their lives than women, one thing. And the men itself, white, white males, not the minorities, and usually middle age is the numbers in the 45, 40, 40 to 55 age, something like that. So I was saying to myself, one second, you would think in a country like the United States, the white, the white population is the majority. The minorities are the ones that may complain of being oppressed or being discriminated against. And yet you seem to find that it's not at all connected with a person's comforts. I did not study about levels of wealth and levels of people's affluence, but I would submit and I would not be surprised that one's affluence and one's net worth has really nothing to do with this issue. I would even go further and say that perhaps the more material success a person may have, that, that material growth or material possessions is not just an indicator, but could actually be a cause of creating more despair. Now, I'm going to qualify something here. I'm trying to broaden the topic here. Obviously, the title is Suicide. But the topic really is about people giving up on themselves and giving up on life. Not everyone is actually going to commit suicide. There are many people who are walking zombies and have given up on life, though they are not taking their lives for whatever reason, and that's also part of this discussion. Really, when it comes down to what do you have inside of you that makes you content and happy? It always surprised me, though I, I understand it, but I can't imagine it, it always surprised me when you hear after the stock market crash in the 20s, and then again in the 80s, where the loss of money caused people to literally c- kill themselves. That means money became more important to them than life. Of course, one of the reasons is because money represents your reputation, represents your value, represents how people see you, your social status. And that can replace a person's love for their own life. That means their life is defined more by their reputation, their status, and so on. How could that happen? So I think we need to really contrast and really appreciate it by contrasting what is life and what is uh, success? What defines success? Now, if someone said the define success is if I have A, B, C, D, and I own that, and if I don't have that, I may as well not be alive, there you go. That's your formula. If, however, success is defined not by acquiring or owning or possessing A, B, C, D, then success has many other avenues and other channels and other outlets. Then it's another story. I would submit is, and I think this is the key thing to remember, that even though suicide is not a phenomenon just of our times, but since we're talking about our times, material acquisition, material success, the things that we measure today, so many people measure success by, is actually our undoing. Because if your value is not based on materialism, and you worship materialism as if that's your value, what do you think is going to happen? When there's going to be a dissonance, uh, be a disproportion between what you consider to be valuable, which is your material success, and your natural value, which is who you are and your life, then they become so disparate. Obviously, then you have that the dissonance I'm mentioning, which causes a person to have despair, even though while they're physically alive. And they have nothing to call upon, because they've defined success in a certain particular way. We are trained... In at least in the Western world, to believe that the successful life is a life where you can buy things, where you can own a home, own possessions, build a family, yes, but a family of means, have two homes, travel, and all the other luxuries of this world. I would. I wonder if we could even think in terms of being able to say, Being able to say whether, um, if we were to put, make two lists, one list called material success, another list called, we'll call it spiritual success, whether they would both be equal lists. And I submit absolutely not. They would not be. The material success, success uh, criteria is a far higher one than the spiritual one. So even though we may have a sense of a spiritual life and a transcendent needs and other things, but it's far overshadowed by our material successes. I remember giving a talk, it was back in uh, London. It was the year 1998, yeah, I believe it was. It was when Goldman Sachs, not Goldman Sachs, I'm sorry. Who um, uh, uh, Was it closed down that day? I was speaking at um, Cannery Wharf, which is the financial district in London, and it was... Uh, Lehman Brothers, Lehman Brothers, that morning announced that they are um, going bankrupt. So everybody was laid off. So my talk would have usually been 50 to 100 people, and it ended up being hundreds of people came for the lunch talk that I gave. And completely unknown to us, it was titled, Is Your Self-Worth Defined by Your Net Worth? And the title tells you tells it all. And that's what I spoke about. And people were sitting there, and I was like, it was unbelievable. It was so surreal, of all times, that moment they were riding high the day before, and now no job. People had invested their entire lives, their entire energy into making successful financial firm, funds, and then suddenly all gone. And literally, you could see people's faces—the despair. You could see the the, the frustration, the, the literally complete demoralization. What what is? Self worth and net worth. I always use this expression. You ask someone, "Who you are? Who are you?" They give you their business card, but that's not who you are. That's what you do. And some people respond, "Well, what I've been doing so long, I've been doing this thing. It's become who I am. Who what I do has become who I am." Think about that. Who you are should define what you do, and instead, what who you are has been defined by what you do. The exact opposite. Your tools should be defined by your use of those tools. The tools shouldn't be telling you what you should be doing. But this is the big, the great dichotomy in the world with which we live in, using the language of Kabbalistic language and Hasidic language. We live in a world where matter dominates over spirit. Even though it's spirit that energizes matter, it's like saying the glove tells the hand where to go instead of the hand telling the glove where to go. And we get a very sparse education about our own souls and about our own lives. Instead, we get an education of how to be efficient, how to function well, how to succeed. I remember listening to one of the TED Talks, an educator, a British educator, I forgot his name, talks about a very fascinating point he made. He said that the elementary school system is actually based on Frederick, Frederick the Great, the Napoleon's curriculum, which they created to create efficient soldiers, which is why the focus is on the physical sciences, the precise physical sciences, like mathematics, history, defined creating efficiency, sciences, Things like creativity, art, music is an extracurricular activity. When you look at children, however, they're the exact opposite. Children are not efficient technicians. Children are dreamers. They imagine. They play imaginary games. They fantasize. They explore. They laugh. They're adventurous. Where does that fit into a mathematical model? So what happens is, the education takes over and essentially crushes and suffocates that inner creative voice. Instead, turning to become efficient with all the explanations involved. Basically, going against the grain of human nature, which is to be free abandon, the adventure, the free spirit, turn it into an efficient machine. Now, no one's denying that you need to have efficiency and you need to have systems and you need technicians and you need the mechanics. But that's the machine that's supposed to release and express the inner spirit. Instead, has taken over. Money was supposed to buy things of quality, not be an end in itself. But then money became an end in itself because of its power. So money is a great thing if it's a means to something else. It becomes a nightmare and a noose around one's neck if it's an end in itself. That's an interesting thing. Things that can be excellent means serve as ends, then they become literally death traps. And the same thing with everything in life. So if your self-worth is defined by your net worth, what it simply means is that your self-worth is no longer talking about a self. It's defined by circumstances, the circumstance, how much money you're earning. Now we understand why businesses do that. Because that's how they drive people to succeed. They say, you want to make more money? That's the greed, the, the profit that you'll make due to your drive. But what happens to our souls in the process? To use it, to paraphrase a verse from last week's chapter, it becomes a land that consumes its inhabitants. It's exactly what the scouts were concerned with. They still have to enter the land. That was their mistake, their great error. But it is a land that can consume its inhabitants if you're not connected. What means it consumes its inhabitants? You go in with idealism, you go in with higher values, with quality, but the marketplace forces us down to our knees, where we suddenly become literally can be dog eats dog. We will compete, we can hurt our own best friends, we can lose sight of our values in the pursuit of success. And this is the story, the tragedy of so many books and so many films and so many poems. The fall of man when man faces material seduction, material lusts, material desires, material goals and gains. The balance to materialism is soul, but it has to be at least equal. You cannot have a body that's indulging in itself and and its material needs, and the soul is only getting fed and nourished once a week or once a month. And the others is is filling itself up and fattening itself every day, every moment. I'm using an analogy, but the same idea. If most of our life and most of our energy is consumed with material stuff, what do you think will happen? First of all, the spirit begins to get asphyxiated, begins to get suffocated. Secondly, we get a a disproportionate value system because what we're valuing is not really what life is all about. And I think I shared this a number of times. I remember once being invited to come to Shloshim. Shloshim is a Hebrew name, for the 30th day when, from the passing of a person. So we honor it, we honor the soul, the 30th day. It's a particular stage as the soul continues its journey after it's spent time on this earth. And I was, uh, it was on the Upper West Side and I was being driven and I was wondering what I'm gonna be saying. And I was looking out the window, you know, looking for the signs, literally. And I said, I suddenly saw a billboard. What was the billboard? It was Newport cigarettes, an ad for Newport cigarettes. By the way, this is not an advertisement, it's not a plug. That's to be a point I want to make. And these two faces, you know, these billboards, these massive billboards, the most beautiful couple, man and woman, with the whitest gleaming teeth. And on top it says, Alive with Pleasure. And of course, a box of, uh, of Newport. And the bottom, the prerequisite big box that has to be re- readable from the highway, smoking kills, smoking carbon monoxide. And I'm not going to get into all the, the, the gory details of the different, I, f- I forgot which warning this was, but it was basically, I'm saying, what, what are the paradox of our modern world? They're spending millions of dollars on these billboards and these advertising with all the beauty and saying it kills you. And yet people will disregard that box because the beauty of the image is so great. So I said to myself, and this became the substance of my talk. So here we are. You're saying not only if if the box wasn't there, so you could say you're deceiving people. The box is there. People can read it in full glory. That's going to kill. And yet they're alive with pleasure. And those white teeth. I never saw such white teeth. So you don't see a picture of real smoker's teeth. You don't see an x-ray of their lungs. You see these people. And it's alive, not just alive, with pleasure. Now, when we define life that way, and Newport is just an example. Take a, you could take a, it can be an automobile. It can be cigars. It can be travel. It can be women. It can be men. It can be vacations. It can be different items, clothing, fashion industry. I mean, whatever you want. The glitz and glamour of life. Same idea. They're alive with pleasure. There they're not going to put a box that it kills. But you know what also kills? And I'll tell you why. Because there's another side to it. What truly defines life? So if you ask a doctor, you ask a scientist, biological life, breathing, the heart's beating, the mind is working. There's definitions, medical definitions of what's called life and what's called death. What is the spiritual definition of life and death? Very, very different. There's a statement that says the righteous, even in their deaths, they're alive. The wicked, even in their lifetimes, they're dead. Jacob, it doesn't say the word death when Jacob passes away. The Talmud says, why? Because he doesn't, didn't die. The Talmud says, what do you mean? They embalmed him. They eulogized him. They buried him. The Talmud answers, just as his children are alive, so too is he alive. So what is this definition of life? This definition of life is a definition of quality life. Not just biological, functional life. Quality life is a very different thing. You can have a person whose entire body is working, humming along perfectly. But they feel dead inside, they'll say. No feelings. Like a zombie. Walking dead. And then you have somebody who may be a little weak, physically. And may not be able to walk so quickly. But there's the sparkle in the eye. You meet this person. And you know what happens. You feel they're alive from within. It's a very different definition. Now, we should all be blessed with both, obviously. But unfortunately, we live in a world where people sometimes choose one and disregard the other. And I'm not saying it's malicious. You don't know. We're not taught. When you're taught in the elementary school system and then later in high high school and then higher education, that your education is about being a successful business person, a successful doctor, a successful lawyer, and it could be very good causes. But success is measured by all kinds of material measures, which are all by definition, which we'll talk about in a moment, temporary. That becomes life, alive with pleasure. So that's what I spoke about. I said there's a chapter in the Torah that's called The Life of Sarah. So you would think a chapter, Life of Sarah, this is her life, great. If you know, look it up in the, in the table of contents, you want to know the life of Sarah? Turn to that page. <laughs> Lo and behold, you turn to that page, you know what the first verse says. And it was the year, the life of Sarah. And she lived 127 years and died. And the whole chapter is about her first burial. The search for a burial spot, her burial. What happens next generation? Her son, Abraham, mourning over her. What's going on here? It's called truth and advertising. You call the title a chapter, the life of Sarah. You're expecting the life. You're not expecting her death. And interesting, Jacob is the same story. The last chapter in Genesis again. Yaakov lived, so you read the end of the sentence, he lived 147 years, he lived the last 17 years of his life in Egypt, then he died, talks about his preparations for passing, doesn't say the word death as I mentioned, and the details, his last will and testament, his blessings to his sons, to his family, what is this? The answer is very simple, depends how you define life. If you find life biologically, then a person is alive, you see the impact that they have on people, the influence, maybe even the fear they drive in others. But life, that's not true definition of life. True definition of life is spiritual life. And spiritual life, you know, when you really see whether a person was spiritually alive, quality life, value-based life, you see that after they're not here physically. Some people, as soon as they die, people would, couldn't wait to forget them. Maybe that's why some people are driven to build monuments and all kinds of plaques that, re, that remind others of them. But a spiritual per, living person lives on. His children are alive. Where do you see that Sarah lived? You see the day after, the week after, the month after, the thousands of years later now, children and grandchildren. She had a son. And who kind of woman was he looking for? Someone like his mother. Opposite of what most people do. Because of the spiritual qualities. So you see how it lives on, then you know this life will never end. Physically it ended, but spiritually it was, always, it was alive and therefore always continues to live on. However, we live in a material world and we, this message, as much as it makes sense, it's hard to embrace. So I go back now to the issue of value of life. When a person reaches a level of despair, whether it's loss of money, I'll go even further, whether it may be due to mental illness, due to loss of hope, due to self-loathing, often due to abuse, sexual abuse, and other experiences, traumas, that have caused a person to hate themselves. And there comes a point where they may consider and say, you know what, it's not worth living anymore. What's happened here? These experiences, and I'm not dismissing them, they're very powerful experiences, but where's this valuable, dignified soul that this human being has? Why is that not shining brightly to counter all the negative? Again, I'm not dismissing the negative. Why is there no such force? Because it wasn't cultivated. So I'm not blaming anyone here. I'm suggesting that if we want to preempt and we want to create environments where people have more options and not see that things are lost because things have been taken away from them or because they feel so self-loathing, they have to be taught the dignity and value of their own inner soul. And the less we know about it, the less we can fall back on it. The reason, as Viktor Frankl so accurately depicted, the reason that some people were able to get through some pain that others cannot, not because they suffered less, but because they had more resources in their arsenal. Man searched for meaning, meaning, purpose. That again is just something that's spiritual. Person has no meaning and purpose, and their whole definition of life is defined by the circumstances. When those circumstances reach a limit, the boiling point, who knows what will happen. Not everyone will take their lives, but some people will physically, physically won't kill themselves, but they spiritually kill themselves. No more hope. Fatalism, resignation, all that comes with that. So the, the value of understanding that you have a beautiful soul no matter what. Needs to be taught from the youngest of age. So when a time comes when there is going to be a challenge, or more than one challenge, you have something else speaking to you, another voice. And that voice can be the difference between life and death, my friends. Yes. That's the best preemptive and preventive medicine. And now wait. We're not talking about once you see a person's already sad or thinking about negative thoughts or talking suicidally, then we're going to start talking about that. Very difficult to do in the middle of a storm to start building and reinforcing the foundations and the roots. You have to do that beforehand. This is something, and it's, and it's not just in order to prevent the negative, it also is an empowering force. That's why I mentioned in the description of the class, this is not a class just for people who are dealing with suicide even those of us that are celebrating our lives, even those that don't have these negative thoughts, is your soul soaring the way it should be soaring? Are you actualizing your great potential? Are you fulfilling the calling and mission for which you were sent to this world? The more you answer yes to that, the less other forces and voices can attack you because you have then the reinforced sense of confidence in your own soul and in your own being. So the real direct solution Solutions, maybe not the right word. The direct approach and methodology is let's start with the preventive, preemptive. From the youngest of age, we need to be infusing in our children not just being proficient in skills and talents and machinery and and efficient functionality, functionaries, but we should be infusing in them even more so the value of their inner selves. You have a soul. That defines who you are, not what you do defines who you are. And your mission is to figure out how to actualize that soul. And I, as a parent or educator, I'm here to help you do that. A few years ago, I made a suggestion. Every morning, you wake up your children. before they go, and Every evening, when you put, before you put them to sleep, tell them exactly this. Besides that, I love you. You have a divine, indispensable soul. You have such beauty, beauty that you and only you can bring to this world. A light, a unique light, unique music, beautiful flower, unique to you. And I am so blessed to have you in my life. And I'm so blessed to be able to have the opportunity to do anything I can to help you actualize that music, that voice. Every morning, every morning, take one minute. And every evening before sleep. This will change your life, your children's life forever. Because besides the fact that you planned that in them and it becomes ingrained in their psyche... Is also provocative, it starts provoking. One second, what does that mean? Tell me more about my soul. And then you have to learn about it, and you have to study, and you have to discuss, and it becomes a topic. So no matter what they'll learn in school, for good or for bad, and even if they become very efficient, then they learn all the sciences that I described earlier, but they have a whole other reserve, I would say a reservoir of resources that really define their soul. No matter what happens in life, you may fail or not succeed in any particular material activity, but you always have this to fall back on, more than fall back on. This is really who you really are. In addition, of course, the goal being that using your material life to be an expression, a platform for your spiritual soul's calling. This is the most preventive and preemptive, not just... God forbid suicide, or suicidal thoughts. But in general, to all the vices and the challenges that we face, depression, listlessness, emptiness, lack of self-confidence and inner resolve, commitment issues, being able to love, feeling you can trust, all comes back to one thing, trusting yourself. Trusting your inner voice, not because somebody gets something from it or because someone complimented you or because it was measured and rewarded in a certain way, but because that's you. It's just the way it is. You have it coming, exuding from your inner being. The best preventive medicine in existence. It builds the self-confidence, it builds the self-esteem, the validation. Like a flower needs water for it to blossom, the soul needs that acknowledgement, that support, that vote of confidence. Now comes a situation, let's say a person doesn't have all of that, or even if they do, and then certain things become really tough, they have this type of thing, they have additional resources. But let us say a person is not like I was, I'm going now a scenario where you have people who do come to the brink and are in despair and are feeling really horrible. So here too, even though, obviously, it's always best the earlier you begin, the better. It's still what you have to be sharing with everyone, every, every person you know, your friend and loved one. Let's talk about first a friend and a loved one. Or family. If you see them in that type of state of mind, you don't have to wait till it's extreme. Start talking to them about their soul, about their value. You have such so much value inside of you. Help encourage them and help them actualize it find ways it could be through hobbies it could be through different interests like art or music it could be through travel everybody has strengths that need to be that can that are an expression of the unique soul and that's something that we have to begin to draw out so instead of just fighting demons and fighting the darkness and the shadows it's also cultivating the positive If a person comes to really difficult, once you've already established such a rapport, you can come and speak to them about that. Now, they may not hear it all. They may say, I'm completely overwhelmed with my negative experiences. What are you talking to me about my soul? But if you've spoken about it and they see you in that context, they see you care and love, it's hard to ignore. Even a person who doesn't love themselves, they see someone else loves them. It's something to think about. They say, why would you love me? I've had people tell them, why would you care about me? I'm worthless, I'm, 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 I'm miserable, and I make everyone around me miserable. The answer is, besides the fact that I love you because you're who you are, but you're also a divine creature. You were sent here with a mission. And then, of course, someone tells me more than once, to say, oh, well, you say that to everybody. First of all, even if it's true about everybody, I don't say it to everybody the same way because not everybody, everybody has their own unique way. That doesn't make it mean that, that, um, that it's not true. Just because everybody has something unique, it doesn't mean it isn't true about you. And this is also a message to those that are in this type of state. If you're listening to this, and I know some do because I've heard different comments and of you've reacted, or you know someone and you want them to listen to this, let me just say these few words if you don't have patience to hear anything else. You are indispensable. You have something unique to bring to this world that must be actualized. An interesting thing the mystics say, that if you think by doing something harmful to yourself, leaving this world, you'll have to come back again, because destiny is destiny. You cannot escape your destiny. So you might as well see it through. Find people that, uh, that foster, that you feel, reinforce that inner value that you have. And you have it. It makes no difference what you feel. Sometimes we have to transcend our feelings and say, I have something even though I don't, I'm not confident that I have it. But I hear it, write it down. There's no way a person in fetters, the Talmud says, cannot free themselves. So you need a message that's outside of you. Because if you're going to just go with by your, own, by, your, by, by your own whims, obviously your own whims are telling you that you're worthless. You're telling you that there's no value to your life. So you need someone to throw you a rope. You need someone objective to tell you it's not true. You are valuable. And more than words, act on something that makes you valuable. Find people that that value you, that affirm you, that believe in you. That is the key. Now, as I said at the outset, we're not naive. I understand there are people that can't even hear this message. I understand some people even dismiss it because they say, you just don't get me. If you knew how far gone I am or how, how, how lost I am. But that's exactly the point. It's not about whether, you, whether you're going to convince someone else because you're so sure. Who said, who, no, no smart person is ever going to be sure of anything. What are we sure of? Especially about our own blind spots. So the message, my friends, is that there's a profound soul inside of us. And life is more than just valuable. And therefore, don't take your life other persons, or your own, God forbid. But life is more than valuable. Life is sacred. It has an inner dignity to it. You're here not by accident, which leads me to another unbelievable to me travesty. We're teaching people, actively children, that you're here by accident. Quirk of evolution, quirk of nature. By accident. Forget about now the scientific, and of course the debates will rage on. But what what are you telling a child, what do you tell an adult, a child growing into an adult, you're here by accident? Which means that you have no real value. You're a mutation. Bacteria that's evolved over billions of years. How can somebody be treated, how can someone find true value when they hear that? The only way is, true value comes, I'll make money. I'll be powerful. I'll be influential. People will like me. Because what else is there to turn to? Because you don't have any inner value inherent in your value on your own. All you have is the accolades that others give you. And that's also part of what we're taught. The whole business model is if you buy this, you'll feel better. If you buy that, you'll be more fulfilled. You'll be more actualized. What do you mean? Birth is God saying you matter. Quote I often use from my book, Toward a Meaningful Life. You matter because you matter, not because somebody else says you matter, or because you bought something and someone made, you made someone else happy. You, you may make them feel that they matter because they were able to get you to buy something, like the man with the money that meets the, the man with the money that meets the man with the experience. So the man with the experience ends up with the money, and the man with the money ends up with the experience. So they both become enriched. I hope it doesn't happen more than once. So the point is. That you have inner value, period, and nobody has to sell it to you. It's not buyable, it's not purchasable, it's not a commodity. It's by virtue of your existence. This is the message we should be telling our children. So scientists will say, one second, we have proof today that we are an accident. We just evolved. No one put us here. First of all, whatever proofs you have may prove certain details. This still doesn't prove nobody put you here. Because who put in place this whole evolution? You could argue, I don't need God. Fine. But having the idea that you are here for a purpose dramatically changes a life into not just a healthy life, but a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life that's going somewhere, and you control your destiny. This is a message that has to be said and and, and ring in our corridors from one end of the world to the other. Seven billion people plus seven and a half billion people need to know this. Every one of our children. If this was something in our gut, we knew it just like we breathe, we know that we need to breathe and we need to eat. We know that we need to have this feeling. Guaranteed, how many maladies would be prevented? Is this magic? It's not magic. It's identifying the root of what makes a healthy person a healthy person. The sense of purpose. The sense of meaning. The sense that your soul is the most important thing in your existence, more than your body, more than your bodily needs, more than your material possessions. And no matter what the world worships, the most important thing to worship is that inner divine soul that you have. When I say mean worship, I mean value. And all the values that come with that, self. that's self-worth. So whether it's a preventive, preemptive measures, as I discussed earlier, or it's a direct effort When you're speaking to someone who feels or speaking or contemplating suicidal thoughts or expressing themselves, you could say to them, you have to have compassion on your family. And they say, listen, I feel I'm a burden on my family. You could say many things and I'm sure they're all good. But above all, the key thing to say and make sure that person knows, you are needed in this world. And you will return if you, God forbid, take yourself out of this world because the world still needs you and you'll come back to fulfill the mission. We can't We cannot do it without you. Besides being empowering, it's validating and it gives a person a sense of purpose. No, what's a big thing? I'm seven and a half billion people. I'm one speck. What, what, what's one dust? Once one speck of dust? One grain of sand on a beach? What is it? Negligible. But then we look today at computers, look at programming. And what happens if you take out one grain of sand from a program, a a period, or another symbol? The whole program won't work. One mutation in 75 trillion genes. I'm sorry, 75 trillion cells. Today we don't measure by size it's a quality we understand the world in a far different way and the same thing with human beings there's no such thing it doesn't matter if there's 70 billion people what you need to accomplish only you can accomplish and you are needed that is the message will this automatically work I keep qualifying because I don't want anyone to get the impression I'm just throwing out platitudes and great it's challenging and it may need to be repeated a million times or let's call it hundreds of times and needs to be not just repeated but confirmed through action, through a vote of confidence, getting a person the right work to do or other activities that help affirm and help express that inner value that they have, that they're needed. Being around loved ones and support systems that that reinforce that message everywhere possible, in fam- at home, school, at work, on vacation. This has to be on the lips of every person. In truth, when we think in terms of, lately, gratitude is a big topic. When we think in terms of gratitude, saying thank you, what are you really saying? You're valuing the person who's done something for you. You are valuing yourself that that, that by giving that gratitude. You're saying it's not just a negligible thing. It's like, okay, big thing. So you did me a favor. Millions of favors have been done. It's the value and the dignity of an, of an experience, of a kind experience. The more we affirm, the more we... Um, with the more we is the word I want to use confirm these acts, noble acts, virtuous acts, kindness, compassion, the more we feed that part of our lives that really never dies. Which leads me to the nature of matter itself. This Hasidic thought based on the, Qabbal, based on many teachings of the Kabbalah and others, makes a tremendous point. Everything in this material world erodes, deteriorates, ages, and dies. So everything is temporary. Now, of course, today we know that matter and energy are reversible. So even if you burn a piece of wood, it turns into energy. Even if that energy is gone right now, it dissipates, doesn't disappear. Just like think of uh, water. You boil water, it turns into gas. The gas goes out there and has some impact. It will never disappear. You cannot destroy something utterly. You can change its shape and form. So the material world is on its own, and it's that shape and form, is temporary. And yet we worship it in that form. No one can take their money with them to the next world, and yet we worship it. Because the here and now has such a seductive power over us, such a hold. That we value it, in the, in the sad terms of the Talmud, we value temporary life over permanent life. Just like you hear from people, the statistics, if you can get right now $1,000 cash, or you can get $5,000 over the next five years, most people say, I want the 1000 now. I don't mean 1000 every year, because that's the clues. I'm talking about, you get right away up front uh, $1,000, or you'll be paid out, $5,000, but, not, but not, in, not in five, I'm sorry, not in five years, but like in $300 increments. People want the here and now. And we worship it. And what it is, is it's an our undoing, because what would happen is we're giving disproportionate value to something that's temporary, and not enough value to something that's permanent. And what's permanent? Permanent is your soul. It's, it's calling, it's virtues, it's values, it's attributes. The things you give and serve others in this world. The contributions you make. That does not die. Now I mentioned matter also doesn't die, yes. But matter, that form, changes shape. What we're worshipping is the form, not the energy that's released from it. In the Kabbalistic and Hasidic text, it talks about taking a material object and making a blessing on it if it's food or other things. Using the energy to sustain you and do a good deed that turns matter into spiritual permanent energy. But it's not permanent when it remains hoarded, when it remains self-absorbed and self-contained. Yes, if you give money, charity to somebody else, it says it becomes matbe'a it becomes a coin of fire, a flaming coin, a fiery coin, like a spiritual force, that because you've, you've released divine spiritual energy from material object. If it remains there, And without any use for any better purpose, it becomes dead weight. But we worship this dead weight. We count it. We worship it, literally. So as a result, that which really matters in life, the permanence of life, becomes, almost disappears. Of course a person like that, I'm not saying he's going to commit suicide, but of course a person like that is much easier for them to do something destructive to themselves, because that's all they have. It's like in investments you need diversification. You put all the eggs in one basket and that basket is taken away. The material basket, then there's nothing left. What did the previous Chabad Rebbe say to his captors when they pointed a gun to his head and said, this gun has made many people change their mind and cooperate? He said, this toy, this tzatzka, can frighten someone that has one world and many gods, but not someone who has one god and many worlds or two worlds. Many worlds, many baskets. If someone has one world, the material world, and you take that away, of course it will frighten them. Not that he, God forbid, wanted to die. But it meant, don't frighten me with these threats. There's diversification. You take my body, there's still my soul. You take my life, they're my children, they're my grandchildren, they're my, they're my students, my disciples, disciples of disciples. That does not die. So, I wish I could find the right words to say to every person that's listening, and even those that aren't listening, should they listen at some point, to appreciate the value that you have. You have unbelievable value. I, without getting into theological proofs and arguments, I cannot see how someone can find value that level of indispensable value if they don't have some connection to something beyond us. Because your own value that comes from, generated from within is only as strong as you are. But if it's coming from a place beyond us, a transcendent place, an eternal place, an immortal place, then that becomes extended into our beings that we too become a piece an extension of immortality, of eternity, of transcendence. And that indeed, my friends, is the whole essence of mystical teachings, to teach how the soul is not just a soulful experience within you, that the soul really transforms your very being to become a vehicle for the immortality of the soul. So how sad is it when everything is reversed, and instead a person takes their life, and becomes a victim of the mortality of this world? should be the exact opposite. Everything about this world, even the pains of this world, are all vehicles, are all platforms, are all channels for immortality. And it's the immortality of your inner value. Honestly, I can't see how I can live a life to the fullest without that awareness. That you matter, everything you do, everything you do matters, now and forever. Everything you do creates a ripple effect. And you are needed, period. This, my friends, is the key to the entire story. You know, so when I see these successful celebrities, have money, have wealth, have fame, have success on all terms, based on all the material terms, it's, it's such tremendous sadness Because I don't know them personally and whether they were suffering from any particular depression or mental illness or other things, but that they didn't have another alternative. Did they not know that you have a soul that continues to live on no matter how bad you feel about yourself and that you can actualize it? But sometimes success, particularly material success, can blind us. Blind us like no other. Like think of a pane of glass. Smear silver on the back. And you become completely blind. You can't see through the glass anymore. You don't know you to see. You see yourself. Narcissus fell in love with the reflection of himself in the water. Contrast that, that mythology, that myth, with King King Solomon's words in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, like a face reflected in water. When you look in water, the face reflects back to you in water so too a heart reflects back to you when you show heartness, heartfeltness. Heart Transparence. The mirror you see yourself and completely self-absorbed. Here the water is not a mirror, it acts like a mirror, but it's a reflection, as the mystics explain, of a divine face reflecting back to you. The silver on the back, the money, Creates a self-contained reality. It's all about me, me, me. When a heart reaches to another, that heart responds. It's not about you. Because you've reached to another, you get that reflection back. So, love, love, love. The love of another person brings back love. There's no question when we show love to people, especially people who are in difficult situations, something touches them. They may be blinded for the moment, they may be blocked, you may not see it, but there's something in there, in another verse, a beautiful verse, Ani Yeshena, I'm asleep, but my heart's awake. And you hear this very often, people who may be in a coma, God forbid, physical coma, or seemingly not lucid, or not coherent, and yet later you hear that they heard the words that were said to them, the kind, beautiful words. So I never know what the Spirit hears. We don't know what's going on inside of another person. We never give up. If we're blessed, we may see the, the return. We may see the, fruit, the fruits of our labor. But no matter what, there's something always effect. We There is an effect. You hear this when you hear mothers who refuse to take orders from doctors who tell them their autistic child will never have a relationship with you. They're not capable. And this child should be put away in a good nursing home in a good home, they'll take care of the child. And you see mothers absolutely refuse to take no for an answer. And they don't cure their child, but they try and they speak to the child but day after day after day. The patience, the love. And you know, something happens a spark, a connection. Sometimes you see it, it's unbelievably moving how a person's will can break through It's your child. Because we don't know what's going on the other end of the, on the other side of the curtain. We know what we see. A man that used to visit his wife as she was deteriorating under Alzheimer's, tragically. And finally, she did not recognize anyone. And the nurse says to him, why do you have to come every day? Your wife doesn't recognize you anymore. He says, yeah, but I recognize her. But that's not just about him. It means also he believes that she recognizes him in some way. and There is a connection. There is the connection. So we can reach anyone if you really make an effort and you really are sincere and feel strong about it. Reach. Never give up. Knock down the doors. Use whatever it takes, especially if it's a loved one. Because as I said, it's life and death. And it's not just you're fighting for that person. You want to fight for that person to fight for themselves, give them the confidence they may not see their own soul you have the opportunity to expose to them and reveal to them their own own power of their soul. We shouldn't rely on it, but what a gift that is. It's like, you know, you see, sometimes someone's walking toward you and they see only bleakness and darkness. You tell them, I see a rainbow. I see a treasure. I see magnificence, glory. And they say, I don't see a thing. You share with them what you see. Don't buy into their view. You give them the perspective, the real perspective. And if you need more of it, read about it. Read about the soul, read about its mysteries, read about its powers. Read about what's going on behind the scenes. And share that. These are the ways that we become greater people. And no matter who we are, we don't have to wait for a negative experience, a suicidal challenge. But it's something every one of us can use, even the healthiest of us, even the people who are most life-affirming, living life-affirming lives and positive and forward-thinking lives. So though this was a difficult topic to speak about because of all the tragedy involved and the dreadful nature of the very word, which I don't even like to utter, but I have to say it, I think we can turn around and look at it as an opportunity to celebrate the soul, to celebrate life. Just like I discussed when we spoke about the Me Too movement. So Me Too is all Me Too what? Me Too, I've also been abused. I've also been violated. I've also been hurt. And I suggested, fine, at least people are coming out and feel the courage and getting empowered by doing that. But the Me Too should be more than just, I too was hurt. Me Too, I'm ready to create a revolution, a feminine revolution of a higher appreciation for the sanctity of sexuality, the sanctity of intimacy, the sanctity of relationships. Let's turn a revolution that first began as a cry for help. As the pain of suffering, as the acknowledgement of violation, let's turn that into a call for a positive revolution to preempt such situations, but more importantly to embrace what a true relationship is, what a healthy relationship is, what commitment means. And the same thing here with the rising rate of suicide tragically, let us turn this into not just no more, never again. Never again be a suicide. No, let's turn it into a revolution of embracing life like never before. When you see a life taken, it's not enough just to say, I'm not going to let another life be taken. We have to create a value for life that's equally powerful than the sadness associated with the taking of a life, whether self-inflicted or not. That's how we respond. So this requires, this should provoke us, this should motivate us to create a revolution revolution for life. lechayim, lechayim to life. A revolution to life. That we will begin to appreciate and learn to appreciate life like never before. The dignified journey, the majestic journey of every soul, its value, its indispensability, It's unique ability to shine a a unique light that no one else but that soul can shine. That's what we need to embrace and turn a revolution, turn that into a revolution. I see no reason why each of us listening to this, each of us sharing this, should not share it with another and another and another. How could someone not embrace such a message? There's nothing about it that anyone would say doesn't resonate. It's unbelievably powerful if you think about it. That's how we should translate the pain and grief and the shock that we see when we hear such events, turn it into an unbelievable, unprecedented revolution of celebrating life, its inherent and indispensable and divine value. That birth is God saying you matter in an absolute and uncompromising way. That's the unwavering commitment that we need to make when it comes to things like this. May God bless us all that we should never hear again of such tragedy. Because the tragedy of one person is not just for that person and the family and loved ones, but it's for all of us. We're all part of this human race. We're all musical notes in this large cosmic composition. And one musical note is taken, especially if it's un- for, un- for absolutely no reason, meaning self-inflicted. If we have enough problems that are not self-inflicted. It's a tragedy for all of us. May we not hear from this and may we only be blessed with good news, long, healthy years. But more than just long enough years, meaningful years. Years filled with meaning, with value and quality. Meaningful Life Center is dedicated to this, exactly as our name implies or states. Please be in touch with us any way we can help, any way we can join you and you join us, partner in this unique journey. That's what we're here for. MeaningfulLife.com. Every Wednesday night, call this the Global Masterclass, And uh, I look forward to share many good news and many good occasions with you. And please share them as well with us. Thank you so much.